I'm going to start reading verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and beheld the star which they had seen in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in the dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. This is, when we look at the, read the scripture there concerning the visit of the three kings, they had uh, brought with them three gifts. The gifts, and, and the, that gift giving is where we believe we possibly get the tradition of gift giving. The only difference is we give and receive gifts, and we look toward, forward to that time. Uh, we don't necessarily think of the story of the wise men. They, they brought three gifts. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, of course, was that gift which, which fit for a king. If we want to make an application, this would speak of his kingship. Frankincense is incense that is burned. Uh, as you remember, in the temple as well as in the tabernacle, there's the altar of incense, whose its continual burning represents the continual prayers going up to heaven. Well, Jesus Christ continually intercedes for us on our behalf. He's continually making prayers for us, praying for things about us that we don't have any idea what to pray for. So you have gold, you have frankincense, you have myrrh. Myrrh was a, an oil. It's an embalming, not necessarily embalming, but uh, to, to put over the, the, the death clothes that are wrapped around a person to help the scent, basically, is what it is. So it speaks of his, his death, or specifically, this is the Savior of the world. He has come to die that you and I could live. So they brought frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And we have that tradition of gift-giving. Of course, in our culture, it's been turned into a commercialized and, uh, and greed. Uh, I don't know if you read or heard of that story uh, about Black Friday. Now it starts on Thursday night. Still call it Black Friday. At 10 p.m., actually 10, 10 p.m. at a Walmart in Southern California, there was an incident a woman pepper-sprayed customers in order to gain access to the doorbuster merchandise. The story goes on to tell us there may have been pepper, she may have pepper-sprayed other individuals throughout the store to try to get to the, the product she wanted. This is called shopping rage. Politically speaking, or politically correct, it's called competitive shopping. 
But that's really what we've degenerated into, and we've lost in the process our understanding of the whole aspect of coming and worshiping the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. Along that line, you, you think of what, what do you get someone who has everything? Caught up into it, so we get thinking, okay, so what do I do to give someone who has everything? Well, if it's a man who has everything, get him a leopard-covered toilet seat. If it's a woman, you want to give her something exotic, like uh, perfume that's made from rattlesnake venom. She'll never have to have another Botox. But, which really brings me, I uh, did all that just really just to get to this. What God wants for Christmas? What does God really want for Christmas? What do you get something to, for someone who has everything? What do we get God? Found in Micah, you can turn there to Micah chapter 6, verse 68. I'm not going to read that right now, but I just want to give you a little background on Micah. The book itself is one of 12 minor books, uh, minor prophets. Now, there's major prophets and minor prophets. The only difference between the two, basically, is the length. But even that is ne isn't necessarily true. For instance, Daniel's book is 12 chapters long. Zechariah is 14 chapters long. But the difference is, even in Zechariah's 14 chapters, is less than Daniel's. Uh, some of the major prophets, their prophecy, not only length, but is, is covers some major details at times. But he's one of 12 prophets. A prophet foretells and foretells. To foretell, he proclaims God's message. Uh, there in chapter 6, verse 1, hear now what the Lord says. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came. He comes to proclaim God's message. He foretells. But also he foretells. He, he, he predicts the future. There in chapter 5, verse 2, he predicts the place of the birth of Jesus is actually in Bethlehem. He names the place. So he foretells and he foretells. This is what a prophet does. This is what the prophet Micah has done in, in, in his book. Uh, the theme of the book, again, this is typical of the prophets, major or minor. It's judgment and hope. You could, in some of them, specifically put a third aspect in repentance because they're calling for the people to repent. But there's going to be judgment for their sin. Uh, for instance, Jeremiah talks, talks uh, to, the, to Judah. He was a prophet to Judah there in, in Jerusalem. And he, he calls them, you know, why have you left your first love? If you just repent and return, he will gather you into his arms. So he calls repentance. But there's judgment coming for their sin. But he also adds hope. In other words, God's covenant promises. God will always carry out his promises. These are unconditional promises that he's given to uh, Israel that's going to be carried out. Uh, specifically, one of the things that Micah calls attention to is what's called the Palestinian covenant. In other words, they, are, they will be brought back to the land eventually. Well, that's God. There is hope. Isn't that our message today? On one hand, you know what? God's going to judge us for our sins. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, I have a message for you, hope. Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, this first advent that we're celebrating this time of year. He was born. He grew up. He was three years in ministry. He died. He rose again. And he lives in heaven today, interceding on our behalf. You ha if you're here and don't know Christ, your personal Savior, you have hope. Because God provided a way of salvation. 
If you're here and you do know Christ as your personal Savior, we still have to judge ourselves, examine ourselves. Am I walking in obedience to his word? You know what? There's hope. Because you're not on your own. Because when Christ went to heaven, he left a comforter behind. He left the Holy Spirit to live within us. And I'm not trying to live this life on my own. I have the Spirit of God living within me to give me the energy and the strength to do so. And I have, on top of that, I have the Word of God who continually washes over me and through me because it is the truth and it is God's Word presented to us. There's judgment and there's hope. Sometimes we emphasize one more than the other. But don't forget, you will be judged for your sin. Your sin. But then, don't forget, it's hope. It's hope. So we have the book and we have the, the theme, uh, the, tr- the time period. This was, uh, there was international tensions. Uh, you know how uh, things change, but they stay the same? International tensions. You had Egypt in the south, Philistia in the west, and he had Assyria on the north and east of them. Assyria was the main power at this time. Babylon had not come to power yet. Israel had not fallen into captivity yet. Assyria, by the one, is the power that took the northern kingdom. All right, so you have, you've got these tensions. You have these political tensions. You have these wars and rumors of wars. This, they're, they're pressuring. There's religious corruption. A man by the name of Homer Haley said it this way. Religion had become a matter of form. Ceremonial observations were thought to meet all religious requirements. There was widespread misapprehension that as long as the external acts of worship were scrupulously performed, the people were entitled to the divine favor and protection. There was a religious corruption. It was all external. Emphasis was all on form. There was moral decay. Chapter 1 of Micah, verse 1 and 2, Wealthy coveted the land of the rich. Chapter 2, verse 8, the wealthy robbed the poor. Chapter 2, verse 11, false prophets who prophesied were rewarded, well, actually were paid, and then predicted or prophesied what the individual wanted to hear. Chapter 6, verse 11, there was corrupt business ethics. Chapter 7, verse 3, rulers and judges uh, could be bribed, and that was expected to have money going under the table. There's an international, today, the point I'm making is, Things change, but yet they stay the same. We still have, we have, still have international tensions. We have religious corruption. There are a lot of... If you drive down a Mockley Road, there's probably ten churches. How many of them are actually preaching the gospel or preaching a social gospel? Or are they preaching just a feel-good gospel? Or are they preaching that, listen, there's only one way to heaven? Even as Jesus said it in his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. How many churches are actually preaching that message? There's, there's religious corruption. And there's moral chaos. Right is wrong, and wrong is right. Everything is relative, by the way. And, you know, we just need to be more accepting. Listen, there is an exclusivity to the gospel. You realize that? Only if you accept Christ as your personal Savior can you go to heaven. There's only one way, and it's only through Christ. Thinking of of religious leaders, also thinking of our our political leaders. Who can you trust? There's moral decay. There's moral chaos. This is the day we live in. This is the day that Micah lived in. 
and the author. Micah, this could be a question. Who is the Lord? Or it could be a challenge to you. Who is your Lord? So Micah's name means, who is the Lord? His name suggests a godly heritage. Micah, he grew up and he lives in, it's names his place, it's on the border of Philistia. So it's 25 miles west of Jerusalem. It's near the city of Gath. Now Gath, if you know your Old Testament history, Gath is where Goliath came from. So he lives on the Judean border with Philistia and is in a country town near Gath in Philistia. He's 25 miles from Jerusalem, and he's a contemporary with Isaiah. Micah ministered to the countryside. Isaiah ministered in the court of the kings in Jerusalem. There's actually, if, if you go through and read some of the prophecies and some of the things in Isaiah, sometimes even the same wording is used in, Isaiah, in Micah. Did they copy each other? I don't know. I do know this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. If they wrote exactly the same thing, maybe they talked to each other, maybe they didn't. But the thing is, they, I believe that they knew each other, that there was interaction between them, as much as it might be between two different preachers or two different missionaries. These are two different prophets. God had placed in specific areas for a specific ministry. So this is, this is the overview of the book of Micah. Uh, Micah wrote to people in trouble. They had huge problems. He condemned their sin and their hypocrisy. He proclaimed that judgment was coming. And one of the, thing, one of the things about Micah is he took no prisoners. In other words, he hit you and he hit you hard. He wanted to confront you with your sin and your sinful behavior, your sinfulness, your hypocrisy, your, your emphasis on externals. You, he wanted to, to hit your heart, not just the external environment and things that are happening. So, what does God want for, want for Christmas? Let's go to chapter 6 of Micah. The scene here is a courtroom. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. The, the scene here is a courtroom. You have the defendant. The defendant is Israel. In this case, even though he lives in Judah, he's presenting this message to Israel. And it's, this is a teachable moment. It's like... A, you're talking to this child, and this one's listening. You're correcting this child, but this child is listening. It's a teachable moment for them to hear and learn and for them to be corrected. So this, when he prophesies to the northern kingdom, he's, te- he's pe- speaking and talking to Israel. And uh, this, this is, they're the defendant. The plaintiff is the Lord. The Lord is bringing the accusation, the person who initiates the legal action. Coincidentally, the judge is also the Lord. Uh, he will render judgment based on the evidence. Micah is a narrator. Micah stands over here on the side of the, of the platform, and as this play unfolds, he's telling you what happens. He's explaining all this. And so Micah is speaking to us, but, he's, but it's a courtroom scene. You've got the players up there. Everybody's in place. And, and Micah acts as a narrator. Verses 1 to 5 you have the Lord's indictment of Israel. Then in verse 6 and 7, Israel's predictable response. And then in verse 8, this is what the Lord requires. All right? Let's look at verse 6 and 7. What, with what, what shall I come before the Lord 
and bow myself before the high God, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Because I want, I want to have you keep in your mind these, these things as we look at these wrong answers, these wrong gifts. First of all, they thought God could be bought. You have to remember, they already could bribe their religious leaders, prophets, to get the message they wanted. They could already bribe the political leaders. They could already bribe the judges to get judgment rendered the way they want. So they are trying to buy God. Probably shouldn't use this illustration, but the idea is, let's make a deal. Door one, door two, or door three. Or, by the way, God, maybe you want all three doors. But we're going to make a deal. When we walk away from this today, we're going to have a deal in place. And so that, so that we come, and as you look through there at uh, verse, uh, verse 6, the quality of sacrifice. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? This was, this was a prime sacrifice. These were year-old calves. They hadn't come quite to maturity, but they were, in, they were good eating if you kept them there and killed them before a year old. And so this is, prime, this is a prime sacrifice. For us to offer this year-old calf, that's a big deal. That's, a, that's an incredible expense we're, we're giving and sacrificing to God. Uh, it's a complete sacrifice. Notice it says it's a burnt offering. In other words, this sacrifice, there's nothing left over. There's nothing left over for a meal. There's nothing to look at. It's, a burnt, it's completely, totally consumed. I'm going to bring my, a yearling, the first-year calf, and it's going to be completely consumed with God. God, what do you think about door one? Will that work? Okay, that won't work. Well, you know what? i got another plan, God. Let's go to door two. The quantity of sacrifice. Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? If quantity, or quality, I'm sorry, won't work, maybe per- perhaps quality will impress God. Thousands of rams will, sh- will surely bring on the Lord's favor for my forgiveness of sins. Maybe this extravagant gift will convince God of my sincerity. And I always think of that word sincerity. Uh, these were the the uh, pottery makers as they would make sometimes they'd heat the oven too hot or they'd have the wrong mixture of clay and when they would cook it it would actually crack or rather than throw it away they would take wax and fill in the cracks so often when you went to the pottery store you would hold what you're going to purchase up to the light to see if you could see the light come through the crack that had been filled with wax surely this extravagant gift will convince god that i'm not a crackpot that I'm the real deal. Surely God will be impressed. Okay, he's not. Let's go to door three. Surely this will do it. The ultimate sacrifice. Shall I give my firstborn to my transgression for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the son for the sin of my soul? The firstborn speaking of your firstborn child, or your firstborn, in their case, firstborn son. Uh, my Andy's my secondborn son, so he's he's okay. But my firstborn son, well, I'd like to give him, but anyway. The whole point is this. This was forbidden by the law. This was, this was what the surrounding countries that, that were uh, opposite, opposed them, this was what the pagans did within their own country. They sacrificed children. 
They had a low, very low view of life, of human life. So God, he's not going to be impressed with my quality or my quantity. Then I'll give him my ultimate sacrifice. I'll give him my firstborn son. I'm giving my, my line. Surely this will oppress him. Surely this will work. I'll offer my firstborn son. They, they, missed, they missed the whole point. They were fo- focused on external religion devoid of a personal relationship. They were focused on external religion devoid of personal holiness. God, all God wants is your heart. Maybe you're here this morning out of duty. You're here for the wrong reason. Maybe you're here because it's Christmas time. You're here for the wrong reason. God wants your heart. He doesn't want you to focus on the externals. And and believe me, it's easy for us to, how do I look? I want to be seen with the right people. we, We get so obsessed with what looks like rather than what is like. The external relationship or external religion and not a personal relationship. This is, listen, this is the same thing that Jesus confronted the Pharisees with. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 and 26. And the reason I say that is this. You know how things change? But they always stay the same. The same issue that Micah's having was the same issue that Jesus had, and it's the same issue we have today. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, 26. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you fakes, you mask wearers. We can't recognize you. You're trying to hide behind your mask, you hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. It's got to start here. We always want to start out here. Well, you know, I, I really can't. I really can't give my time because I, I, you know, I, I want to give my time, but I have this external. It starts here. God wants your heart. All these things after He has our, these things will change. Your want to will change, but He wants your heart. So what's the right answer? Ultimate sacrifice. What's the right, right answer? Verse eight. He has shown, the word shown, I'm just going to again give you a running commentary. The word shown means he has openly explained. In other words, this is not something that is hidden. This is not a secret. In other words, this isn't something you have to try to figure out. He says, he has shown, openly explained, demonstrated to you, O man, what is good. The word good means right, desirable, worthy. And what does the Lord require? Now, that's an interesting word. Because we said good has to do with right and what's desirable. Required doesn't mean desirable. Required has what is expected. In fact, it even goes a step further and says this is what is demanded. What does he require? What does he demand? What does he actually expect from you and me? And what does the Lord require? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. 
There's, there's three things that stand out here as, we, as I'm going to look at these real quickly. They're proactive. This is not something that, you do, that someone does to you. You implied personally, you love mercy. You do justice. You walk humbly. This is something you do. This is proactive. This is personally application that you put in place, that you do. The other neat thing about it, there's progress implied here. All of us, each of us here, are at different points in our Christian life. And that's not the problem, or that's not really the issue. The issue is, are you growing? You understand? Are you, if you were here last year at this time spiritually, are you at that same place this time this year? If you are, you're not growing. You're not progressing. You ought to be progressing. You ought to be growing in your faith, growing in doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly, growing and changing. All of us are at different points in that growth process. But are you changing? Are you growing? Listen, this is what he demands. He expects of us. So it's personal. It's proactive. And there's progress taking place in these three things. So, first of all, what does he demand? What does he expect? Justice. A just weight uh, or scales that are going to be correctly measured. They often applied, by the way, this word is often applied to God's character. He is just. He's not heavy-handed. In heavy-handed in the sense that, yeah, he will, he will judge sin, but he's just in how he judges that sin accordingly. He is just. This is required that you do justly. You treat people right with fairness. To do justly. How do you treat people? Just and fairly. Often the question it can be asked, even with any of these, is how would you want to be treated under the circumstances? The situation that you're in, just and fairly, to be fair and righteous in all our dealings. What's the second thing he requires, he demands? Mercy. He says to love mercy. It means gentle, patient, compassion. This is an unconditional commitment to assume the best and pursue the highest good. Our predisposition is not to love mercy, but our predisposition is to assume the worst and hear all the dirt. Come on, tell me what it is. But to love mercy, to love mercy is to have unconditional com- commitment to assume the best and pursue the highest good. Sometimes this is translated lovely or beautiful. To be lovely or beautiful. Uh, some, some author has written, he said, this is actually hope for the homely. For you to love mercy is actually to appear beautiful to others. It's hope for the homely. To love mercy. The third one, humility. Humility probably is one of the most difficult things to define. But it's most noticeable in its absence. You think about that? One of the most difficult things to define, but it's most noticeable in its absence. There's an absence of humility. Or they sure are full of themselves. There's a fullness of pride. It means submissive, modest. Pride is having an inflated opinion of yourself. 
where humility is having a small view of yourself. You have a big view of God. If you have a big view of God, you're going to have a small view of self. God is righteous and just. God is going to cause and bring judgment, but yet he forgives. God is going to extend mercy to us, but at the same time we're condemned in our own sins and trespasses. You have a big view of God, you're in a small view of self. Because you're going to realize that, you know what, he is ultimately in control. And God, help me not to get so full of myself that I forget about how big you really are. A man by the name of Ray Pritchard wrote, This is humility. God made me, and I belong to him. True? God made me, and I belong to him. Every good thing I have in life is a gift from the Almighty. Sometimes we think it's ours. Man, we hold on to that $5 bill as if we earned it ourselves. It's a gift from God. I always still think of uh, the offering where the guy kissed his $5 bill goodbye and said, until we meet again. We are to hold lightly what God has given. Hold it loosely, because it's a gift. This is humility. God made me, and I belong to him. Every good thing I have in life is a gift from the Almighty. Some have more, some have less. It matters not to me. I thank God for what I have. I'm going to do the best I can with what God has given me, and I'm going to leave the outcome to him. That's humility. Why? Because I have a big God. He's in charge. It also speaks of an attitude, probably more than the other two. Humility speaks of an attitude. In other words, I already have a bent. I'm already pointed that direction. And when I get fired up, I'm going to come across humbly with humility. That's why John 3.30, when John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, Listen, remember that man you baptized, which was the Christ? He said, There are more people following him now than are following you. And what did John say in John 3.30? He said, I, they, I'm sorry. He must increase and I must decrease. That's where you and I need to be. He must increase and I must decrease. What does God want? Do justice, to love mercy, and walk, walk humbly. He wants your heart. He wants you, not the externals. This is a paraphrase from the Message Bible. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love, and do not take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. This Christmas season, if you accomplish nothing else, sit down quietly alone with the Lord and take him seriously. He wants your heart. In all the fluff, all the externals that are going on, he wants your heart. Do justly, love mercy. Bow our heads in prayer, please, as we close our service. Father, we, we pray that as we come to the close of our service, we pray, Father, that you may continue to work in our midst. 
If you're here this morning with head bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning, say, Pastor Ken, I would like someone to show me from the Word of God how I can be saved. Is anyone like that? Secondly, say, Pastor Ken, pray for me that I will do justice, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. The Lord will make me tender to these things. Is there anyone like that? Yes, others? Yes, others? Father, again, we we thankful that you do know hearts, even though they may not have raised their hand. There's a tenderness and openness there, and I pray that you may do a great work in hearts and lives, whether it be in our midst or in extended families, that they may see that there's a difference. We pray, Lord, as we go forth, that you be glorified and honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.